You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, June 4, just after market close, London time. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Roger Hurst from the UK. But first, Nick Correa with today's ECB policy action. Nick? Thanks, Ash. Today, ECB President Christine Lagarde announced an additional 600 billion euros to be added to their Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, or the PEP. Due to the Eurozone's unprecedented contraction as a result of EU's response to the coronavirus, Against that backdrop, the ECB forecasts that the Eurozone economy will shrink 8.7% this year. The June Eurosystem staff macroeconomic projections see growth declining at an unprecedented pace in the second quarter of this year, before rebounding again in the second half, crucially helped by the sizable support from fiscal and monetary policy. The 600 billion euros in monetary support comes in at a higher number than economists originally expected. This brings the total of the PEP to 1.35 trillion euros, or 1.52 trillion dollars, putting the ECB on track to buy more than 1.7 trillion euros by year's end. With this program, the size of the ECB's balance sheet is now a third of the size of the Eurozone's GDP, the same as the Fed's. The ECB also has cut its inflation forecast for this year to 0.3%. Next year, they're forecasting inflation to be 0.8%, and in 2022, 1.3%. These forecasts are well below their inflation target, which is slightly below 2%. As the length and severity of the recession and recovery will very likely be difficult and drawn out, Ms. Lagarde also announced that the ECB would be extending the PEP through the end of June 2021, and that any maturing bonds that were bought under the PEP would be reinvested until at least the end of 2022. The main ECB deposit rate remains unchanged at 0.5%. According to a report in the Financial Times, this announcement from Ms. Lagarde is indicating that she is looking to be ahead of the curve, as she had received criticism and was forced to apologize to her colleagues in March for being reluctant to combat the sell-off in bonds in southern European countries. Ms. Lagarde's announcement also comes out only a few weeks after the German Constitutional Court's ruling, which said that the ECB's older scheme of buying sovereign debt breached their constitution. Despite that, the ECB seems to be willing and determined to act. We have indeed taken note of the judgment, which is directed at the German government and at the German parliament, and we are confident that a good solution will be found. A good solution that will not compromise the ECB's independence, will not compromise the primacy of the European Union law, or the ruling of the European Court of Justice. And I'll send it back to you, Ash. Roger, welcome back. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Lots to talk about today, as always. Let's jump right in. Roger, what are you looking at today? I think it was in the intro, ECB um, announced a bigger package than expected, hot on the heels of Germany announcing some additional fiscal. And obviously, last week, we had the ECB rescue package proposed. And so that's really got the dollar, uh, well, it's got the euro going, dollar on the back foot. So going considerably beyond where I'd have expected it to go. It looks like some stops went off today. 
um, as we were going on air, we'd just drawn back from about 113.65 on the euro, back down to about 113. So that really got things moving. And it also got some bond yields moving. We talked about this yesterday that we had to watch out for bonds. But whether it's on the back of this or you know, other elements to do with people feeling more comfortable. But we saw a move in bond yields into the low 80s. So we've broken out of that tight range of the last really two months. And I'm hearing that there's, you know, we've got to watch for the 84 basis point level. This is on the US 10 year. 84 basis point level um, apparently is where there could be some stops that could go off in, in bond markets as well. Our yields could go a little bit higher from there. But, you know, still the bond yields and, and emerging market currencies are still well within the framework that we've talked about. But the euro, you know, it's now showing a clean pair of heels. And we've got to start putting in, you know, putting in some ideas of where it could go. Although I want to check that this is not just stops going off today on the back of the ECB, because we now pretty much know everything coming out, out of Europe um, in the short term. Yeah. So speaking of the short term and the slightly longer term, zoom the camera out a little bit um, for people who aren't following this as closely as you are. $600 billion in additional uh, stimulus. Nick just covered this. What does this mean and what's the significance for the eurozone? Well, I think with all of these things and with the package that was announced last week, that what Lagarde is trying to do is always beat expectations. She did a horrible misstep back in, in I think it was the March March one where she basically said, oh, we don't care about Italy, not in those words, but that's basically what she said. And she got slapped down by her own, you know, her own um, board members. And since then, she's gone out of her way. And, and so the market was expecting 500 billion. I think we already had 735 billion in this package. So the market expected 500, it came out at 600. The fiscal package from Germany was um, 135 billion. And then we talked about before the, the rescue package, which was going to be 500 billion of grants, became 500 billion of grants and 750, sorry, 250 billion of loans, but that's got to be all agreed over the next probably months, you know, who knows how long it takes in Europe. So the significance here is it's bigger than expected. And the strange thing is that when you get bigger than expected packages in the US, the dollar falls. When you get bigger than expected packages in Europe, the euro goes up, mainly because we know what it really means for each of those regions, particularly Europe, where Europe needs a lot of help. Yeah, I think the comment you're referring to is back in March, on March 12, uh, Christine Lagarde said something about, you know, to the effect of, uh, you know, we're not here to close bond spreads was the was the substance of what she was saying. And and we can sort of read between the lines on that. The significance of today's uh, policy action, is that in some ways a refutation of her earlier statement on this point? In some ways it is, or well, that's what it looks like, because the bond market did exactly the opposite. So we've seen a tightening of, it's the Bund BTP spread that everyone looks at, so the 10-year Bund, Germany versus the 10-year BTP in Italy. And that came in quite, um, you know, when I say quite dramatically, quite dramatically by recent standards tightened up today. Um, we've seen German yields going a little bit higher. So yes, I mean, this is all kind of helping the stability outlook for Europe because Europe is still a mess. I mean, the whole concept for many people is a mess and it requires global growth. And despite everything that might be happening at the headline asset price level, all the indications are still that we don't have any growth and the recovery level of growth will be to a level far lower than where we were before. So this is still all, all plasters, I think. But nonetheless, you know, if it's all about sentiment in this sort of environment, and as we talked about yesterday, over the last few days, we've seen this shift towards global growth away from NASDAQ, away from S&P. We've seen Europe outperform the US quite dramatically over the last three or four days, having not really done much. We've even seen the emerging market starting to outperform as well as you'd expect when the dollar's on the back foot. So in, in terms of that messaging, it all helps. But you know, this is pretty much the shots being fired, I think, for Europe for the short term. 
Yeah. So on that, let's switch back a little bit here to the U.S., which you alluded to. It's almost like there's some competing narratives here uh, in terms of uh, the real economy, where we are in terms of positioning uh, and uh, and cash uh, for the uh, U.S. equity markets. I see you're smiling. We had some comments yesterday uh, that were very interesting. I, I found a particularly amusing uh, potential lexicon for us to use about uh, rent-seeking, regulatory capture, uh, and the financialization of the economy. They're tweaking us a little bit about the potential divergence between what's happening uh, in an equity market that seems, frankly, detached uh, from uh, from what Ed Harrison is calling uh, a triple crisis, right? We, so we have we have uh, the economic crisis, we have obviously the coronavirus crisis, and now here in the U.S., increased uh, civil unrest and potential political uh, and social risk. So, what are your thoughts when you think about that at the broadest level? What are your thoughts about how you start to disaggregate those separate narratives? So, I think you know the you know we're in this world now where we're sometimes collectively neither we're either too bearish. Or too bullish, and it's kind of both those camps are now out in force, and it's totally understandable because, you know, as we said before, and you know, I'm sitting here in the UK, and and I, you know, we know a lot of our viewers are outside the US, and the Nasdaq is not the equity market of the US, and the US equity market is not the global market, and whilst it might chime with the economy, it's certainly not the economy at the moment, and the equity market has been divorced from fundamentals for a very very long time, well prior to what's happening today. So what I'm still looking at is, and and I, you know, I think it may be there's a misquote or a miscomment of my own yesterday, which is um, that I think the lows are in. And what I what I think is that the lows are not in in terms of the um, the, the outlook. Now the short term catastrophic move in GDP, I think, is behind us. And in some ways, I'm looking at this a bit like 19, you could say the early 1980s, where we had a double dip recession. I think what we've had is we've had the liquidity event shock recession. We're now having this sort of short period of recovery out of the liquidity event, but then we could go into a second recession, a double dip, or it could be that we go recession, bit of a recovery, but very small depression. And that's the economic depression. And in 1982, the second one lasted for nearly a year versus the first one that lasted for a very short period of time. And it's this, this is, I think, the really key thing, and it's what I've talked about before in terms of the framework. What really matters here is that if we're in a completely normal world, and we'd had the COVID shock, it would have been a shocking shock, we'd have had the liquidity, we'd be fine. The problem is for the last 10 years, we've effectively been living on the fumes of debt. So this is a leveraged global economy, particularly so in places like the US and Northern Europe. And the what we've seen now is that, is this going to change behaviors at the margin in a way that people want to delever? And you know, one of the, one of the perhaps the most shocking numbers that we've seen is the savings ratio went to 33% um, in the last data. This is way beyond anything that we've seen. Now, OK, that's a mirror image of the macro data that's way beyond anything we've seen. The point here is that if corporates and households change behaviors towards one of deleveraging, then it's the second way we have to really worry about. And that's why I think that we go lower on equities. And the danger, the real danger with this one is that, remember, this thing has been shockingly fast in a way we've never seen before. 2008 was two and a half years in the making with a sudden denouement at the very end. This one just suddenly came out of the blue. The reaction was instant from central banks. But what we could get now is, and this is where people are now talking about the next round of job losses are not going to be kind of the, the blue collar, the working class job losses. It's going to be at the management level. It could become more serious. We are starting to see a decline in those 401k flows, which we probably come on to. We're seeing some material changes, some structural changes. I think this is absolutely key to where we look for now. And I think this is why we do go lower but I think it would be a much be a grind lower 
And it'll be harder for people to actually think about getting out of that one because it'll feel like each day is not too bad, but it collectively over time, I think it'll be a lot worse. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I watched um, I watched uh, earlier today the uh, Real Vision uh, YouTube channel. I saw the uh, Real Vision Refinitive show that you host, I think, on a weekly basis now. And the one chart that's, that stood out at me, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen it, uh, go check it out on the YouTube channel. It's, it's, it's about monetary policy uh, and the limitations and discontents thereof. Uh, but the one chart that struck me uh, was just the degree of of just linearity going straight up on that uh, savings rate was just an extraordinary chart. And it's over a pretty significant time horizon where you see, you know, variation, of course. But this just the line, vertical bar. I mean, really an unusual looking chart. And I think, yeah, what's what changed? This all changed in 2008. So from about 1980 to 2008, the savings rate declined as yields fell and interest rates fell. And then in 2008, we went to the zero bound and we had a, a, shy, a spike higher in the savings rate then. It came back, but then it ground higher from there during this period of the zero bound. Now, Bank of America did some analysis and they said that you know, what, what you see is that the savings rate goes up almost entirely as you have um, interest, you have 10-year yields below 4%. Now, both the zero bound and yields below 4% really coincided with the period after 2008. But now you've got this supercharged move of savings. Now, it looked like the the... It looked like there's something broken already in 2008. And I think that this is going to reinforce that broken pattern. And the point that we've got to make here is that monetary policy doesn't actually drive growth. It does the exact opposite. The monetary policy that we've had, which is more QE, lower interest rates, potentially yield curve control, what all that does is it actually creates deflation or at least economic deflation, growth deflation, prospects of future growth is deflating in this environment. And what we're seeing right now, and this is where, you know, when I look at the S&P, one way to look at this, and I've said, you know, we have to have in our framework the idea that we could get to 4,000 on the S&P and be in a recession. The two are not mutually exclusive. But if we did get to 4,000 on the S&P, my view on the future growth of the US economy would be reduced because what that's telling me is it's a massive misallocation of capital away from productive capacity towards asset prices, and particularly the zombification of corporates that would normally have gone under in a recession of this type every time prior to 2008. Yeah, um, the 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 tenure at uh, a four as a uh, as a lower bound uh, it makes you feel nostalgic, right? You look at the tenure chart. We haven't been there at some time, trading just above 80 basis points now. But to get back into your point about asset inflation, because I th- we spoke online, uh, or rather offline, after the show yesterday, and you had some really interesting observations about what is uh, driving. The prices higher of those uh, of the five stocks uh, in the S and P five hundred, the five big cap tech stocks that are really the source of this rally. Yeah, look, there's there's a couple of things. Now we talked about at length about the um, you know how does the central bank liquidity make its way into the market, and if you think about what it was beforehand, because this is a trend that's accelerated over the last couple of months, but it was in place beforehand, and it was buybacks was number one, and number two as a sort of Part of that, that low yield environment was the 401k flows coming in. So this is the rules-based funds, systematic funds, getting money in from pensions, stuffing it into the market and generally following the same same, um, area. Now, we know that buybacks have disappeared except for one area. And that one area is tech stocks with 65 billion announced according to Deutsche Bank over the last three months. So actually the market's done what it's done all the time, which is it's chased buybacks. Those buybacks have been in one sector and particularly those been five big stocks in which it's played. But we know that the buybacks of the rest of the market are not going to be there. There's going to be some sort of requirements, some penal requirements for those who have borrowed um, from the government. 
And it looks like those 401k flows, the pension flows, are actually now in decline. So those two major supports have gone. What we've also seen in here is apparently 800,000 Robinhood accounts, new accounts opened in two months, and 3 million new brokerage accounts chasing this market. And you know, we're in a world of lockdown where there's no sport and there's no gambling, but there's been checks rolling in. And it looks like people have been opening accounts to gamble in the equity market. And the great thing about the equity market so far is that every horse has been a winner as long as you've been long. Whereas when you're betting on horses or any other sport, you know, you nearly always lose. Yeah. This has been an incredible um, um, environment. But, and this is the risk, one of the big risks for the market now is that we're starting to see the rotations. But what happens when these millions of new guys who have basically been gambling and have only seen winners, everything has been a winner, sudden, suddenly starts to roll over. We now have a motion in the market. In February the 15th, 2020, near the all-time high, February the 19th, all-time highs, there wasn't much emotion in the market. There were skeptics with people like us going, God, this is ridiculous. But the emotion like we saw in 2000 didn't exist. That emotion is now coming back because now we're seeing engagement from retail. But so far, it's been a one-way ticket. And what happens when that becomes a one-way ticket to oblivion? That's the danger. I don't know what you're talking about, Raj. Uh, stocks can only go up. Ask anyone who's been investing for 60 days. Well, that's right. And this is, this is why it becomes a scary prospect, is that you're starting to see the rotations. And the rotation is a distribution, and that doesn't mean you get a top. It just means the leadership starts to change. And hopefully it does, because we talked about this concentration, not just, it's not just concentration in the U.S. It's these U.S. stocks are concentration on a global basis as well. But when you start to get, you know, markets don't go in a straight line. It feels like it right now, but they don't. And we have to accept that there's going to be some pullbacks. Now, it's going to be how the emotional side of this market reacts in that environment. That's the trading part of it. That is the kind of, you know, when we see the end of this, this liquidity-driven rally. And, but I'm thinking more you know, beyond that is that we're going to get the much, much more elongated part, which is the economic reality. And the danger of that is some of these people who have got in might go down a couple of percent, then goes up half a percent, one percent, then goes down three, and it becomes a grind like 2000 to 2003. And then it's the frog in the frying pan. You know, you suddenly realize you're, you're dead. I think that's the way this market will eventually turn out. Yeah. And to call back to something you said earlier and something that you've spoken about eloquently in the past, talk a little bit about passive flows and the role that they played in this market running up to where we are now and are playing today. So the passive flows, and people think of passive as being, and I, I fudge this a little bit, so passive is just buying an ETF or buying an index tracker. But I actually include in this all the rules-based funds, which are systematic funds, which might be um, minimum volatility, risk parity. It's ones which are generally, they have a set of rules. And off you go, and they just follow the rules regardless. So rather than saying, oh, my God, this stock's overvalued, it might be that based on levels of volatility in various asset prices, bond volatility, equity volatility, you allocate capital that's coming in from, let's say, a pension fund. And for a long, long time, you'd have things like a 16 level of realized volatility, actual volatility on the S&P on a three-month basis might be your difference between being a seller of equity and a buyer of equity. So remember 2017. Vol was 10, realized volatility was actually lower. And that meant that you're allocating your maximum amount of capital to equity and it just bid the market up. So that was one of the main drivers, this flows. And we've actually seen, I think the calculation last year was that in the US, we flipped from um, the majority of assets being active to now the majority of assets being passive. Now that's one study that I've seen. It's not necessarily hard and fast, but I think it's fair to say that most of the buying activity has been the rules-based passive again, selling from actors, because we know that actors have been bleeding cash. So they've been selling their their, their, um, their positions. So that was the, the place that we'd seen. And this is one of the drivers of a market that went to 
you know, all these highs, new highs and new highs, even though profits remain flatlining since 2015, the equity market went up, PEs went up because you just had dispassionate buying. You couldn't survey these people. They don't have emotions because they're basically rules-based funds and, and effective computers. That's been the driving force behind the market. It still is the driving force now, but we have seen active managers and now retail getting involved, and that could change the dynamic again. So speaking to that, what what would you see this portending for the future uh, in terms of the multiple expansion component, but also that role of passive flows and the varying ways that you've just described it? So the, the really hard thing now is is the, the Fed has, again, painted itself into a corner because the market goes up as long as the Fed's supporting it. And we've seen basically 10 years where the markets love low growth with the fear of going into negative GDP and the Fed coming into it. So they, they've been supporting this market. Now, we all now know that if they stop supporting this market, the market sells off, which is bad. They don't want that to happen. So they have to keep doing it. But the more they keep doing it, the more they're pumping capital into zombie companies effectively, the more they're keeping that corporate bond game alive, the more they're preventing newcomers, entrepreneurs from coming into the market. So it's a really hard game to, to play, or it's a really hard game to work out how it ends because those forces are currently in control. And this is why I think that the danger will always come from the, the slow burning insolvency rather than what we see. Now, you know, when I say what we've seen, you know, we, we talked about we expected a rally up to 62%, but now the rally that we've seen beyond the 62% retracement is something that I didn't really expect. But having said that, what we've now got is a Fed that wants to keep it going. We've got a government, uh, we've got a, a, a president who wants to keep it going. So how much can they pull their foot off that accelerator? And if they can't, this is why I think that future growth will be impaired and why the insolvency side is more likely. And therefore, we will get new lows, but in months or a year's time. Yeah, it's so interesting when you think about the tactical and strategic at the same time. You've spoken uh, about that retracement level, as you just mentioned. I'm curious now that we've exceeded uh, that uh, in terms of the in terms of the bounce back. Do you think that that portends or bakes in more risk into the system because we may be trading a little bit hot? I mean, yeah, obviously, when you get a move like this in all assets, you know, you get to the point where you get overbought, you get stretched. We've seen from absolute fear move to we're about halfway back to full greed. So if the middle points being, you know, there's full fear, we're about here now, and that's full greed. So that's come. We've seen um, your put call ratios, which actually are not a great way of, of, of generally looking at the market, but they've got to levels where no one's really hedging this. The short interest on a lot of the stock market, so short interest on things like Qs and Spiders has fallen to significant lows on LQD, which is the, um, the ETF on the investment grade. The short interest has fallen. So all that has happened. But other people are saying, but look, there's cash balances. The problem with the cash balance argument is it's a bit of a wrong one because if I've got cash, I can buy the market. But to buy the market, someone's got to sell something to me and then they have the cash. So they've got cash balances. It's cash balances in those groups of people like asset managers who need to put it to work. And some of those are relatively high in some arguments, some, some areas, relatively low in others. It's getting stretched, but it was stretched at 62. It's stretched at 76. But let's say it rolled over 5% and the Fed came and said, we've got 2 trillion more will probably go to all-time highs. Now, none of us really know whether they will or won't do that because we don't know what is their tolerance level of a lower equity market. Their tolerance level of the equity market at the all-time highs in February was beginning to wane because the Dallas Fed president said, I think we might have overduced this one, and they pulled, pulled their foot off the accelerator the week the COVID went global. That was when we collapsed. So that's the problem. That's the dance of death that we've been talking about on this, which is how do you do that? If they keep on going, and they keep signaling that they're going, 
then we can keep on going higher. But you have to accept that we'll have the air pockets. If you can withstand a 20% drawdown air pocket style, fine. But most people have things like a 5% stop loss. Then you right. have to be more careful. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about those air pockets and also thinking about the historical context that you laid out. You compared some of the uh, retracement uh, action uh, for things like 1987 uh, crisis, some Japanese action, uh, obviously, in uh, some of their crises there in the uh, in the 80s. Uh, and then you also talked about the, uh, the Great Depression, of course. How has your hypothesis been updated in terms of those historical models? Well, it's blown all of them out of the water so far. Um, the only one it's got any similarity to is that we rebounded 76% in Volmageddon of February 2018. But because that was Volmageddon, I'd kind of put that one as my um, my least expected example. And I was using all those others, which all of them went to 50 to 62%. And remember, this is all frameworks. So I've always talked about frameworks. You remember back in March, March the 17th, 18th, I talked about there is a possibility that you could get a low in expiry because that has happened. You get inflection points around major equity expiries. And that was on the 18th. The expiry is on the 20th. The low is on the 23rd. At no point did I say we will get a low. I just said in your framework, you have to be prepared that this might happen. And on the way up, I said, look, we have to be prepared that the 50 to 62 percent retracement is completely normal in every single other major bear market. 76 percent, which is where we are in the S&P today, is abnormal. And obviously, the all-time highs on the NASDAQ is super abnormal. So these are things we've never seen before. Right. We can say that pretty much about everything in this market. And I think that you know my feeling here is that it's time to lighten up because I think the risks are starting to build. Things are getting overstretched. And now they're getting overstretched with the emotional traders involved as well. Whereas if, it was, if there was no emotional traders in here, I'd be thinking, you know what? I think the central banks can keep this going. That idea of 4,000 on the S&P and a recession could come true. But this influx of retail, this influx of emotional traders brings a lot of the um, technical analysis back into play because that technical analysis is nearly always a technical analysis on our impurities, as it were, our inefficiencies uh, in the marketplace. Right. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so complicated that you have this divergence of those two narratives. And one of the things that makes it kind of unsatisfying for people, they look at this and they want a simple narrative and there just isn't one to be found right now. No. And this is where what really makes it hard for me in particular is that I'm sitting here looking at a lot of the stuff in Europe and we've had a nice bounce in the Eurozone banks, but they haven't even bounced 38% yet. They've just barely got to the 24, 23.6% retracement. And I look at a lot of the stocks outside of, of the US, which are back to 50% retracement. Some are getting towards 62, but a hell of a lot of them are not. And this is also with the biggest packages that we've ever seen, support and accommodation within Europe, even Australia, and I think the um, Canadians have gone for a form of QE, yield curve control in Australia, Bank of Japan added another trillion. You know, these are unprecedented. Here we use the word unprecedented too much, but I'm going to use it more now because these are things that we've never seen. These are incredible responses to something that's happened in a very short fr uh, time frame. But what really matters for me is that the short time frame on the asset prices versus the longer time frame on the real economy. And it's the real economy that is going to play out. And this is what we're kind of seeing globally. You know, the protests are obviously worse than the US. They're happening in Europe as well. They're just not as supercharged, but they are happening. France has got some quite dramatic ones as well. There's clearly something that is not right in the economy. And that is the great disconnect. And that's what I think will eventually catch up. And I think equity prices will eventually catch up to that reality. But that's the solvency story, the real story, rather than what we talked about, which is the liquidity story, which has gone way beyond where I expected it to now. But 
you know, there's been a much, much bigger response than most people expected from all central banks. Yeah, protests in the United States and France, shadows of 1968. Uh, you know, I really think that one of the reasons that this narrative feels so unsatisfying is the point that you just made, which is the amount to which it's being perceived as being driven by central bank liquidity and fiscal stimulus. There's something about that that doesn't feel right to people who are looking for some kind of a, a pricing mechanism that forecasts future economic activity. I think what I look at here, and last year I was um, I was slightly less negative about the move in bond yields. And what I felt happened last year is that we saw, you know, when we had that big move in bond yields, there was a, a lot of it was to do with people like JP Morgan who had um, had loans and they wanted to shift into bonds because it had a lower capital charge because they were a global systematically important bank. Then you got the convexity, which meant that you saw this move down in bond yields become aggressive. And then I think what happened is that because the bond yields moved and then we got a an inversion of the curve, Everyone extrapolated out that out of that a severe recession. Now we got one, but that's because of COVID, not because of what happened in bond yields. The same is happening today from the equity market. The equity market has bounced so aggressively that we're extrapolating out of that the recovery. There wasn't a, there wasn't an imminent recession last year. Based, it was just the bond market suggested there was, and the the um, the recession was extrapolated out of that in some ways. Today, I think what's happening is the same from the equity market. The danger is that it's always somewhere in between. And the reality, I think, is what we can see with the real economy. And this is why it goes back to my biggest concern is we're going to get the double whammy of zombification of large cap companies who can tap the capital and the bankruptcies in small, small scale companies and families who can't tap the capital. And between them, they will slow future growth. And I think that will be a massive drag on, on, you know, on equities eventually. Yeah, that's really the worst of all possible worlds scenario. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a terrible one because you know you've got your small companies, small businesses. They desperately want to either continue in the vein that they have because they support local communities. They've been a local business, or some of these are the entrepreneurs. They're the ones coming through. They're the ones we want to come up and replace these businesses that have become behemoths. They sucked out the competition from you know become monopolies either regionally or on a larger scale as we've seen with some of them, and they stifle competition. So productivity has fallen. Future growth prospects remain low. We might see there's inflation, but that's not economic growth. It's just potentially inflation of certain asset prices. So we'll probably see a, a decline in real wages on the back of this. And this, I think, is the big problem that we've got, is that, that everything that's being set up is now all the things that will be a drag on real productive growth. We've seen this for 10 years, but we're accelerating this process today because of the Fed's actions. So the, the fact that the S&P is rising is, in my view, indicating that future growth will be falling because of the reasons I've just highlighted. You know, this is so crucial, Roger. You've hit on something here that I think is at the core of what's upsetting people. It feels emotionally unsatisfying. The fact that asset markets are rising while there's so much emotional energy uh, in the United States, especially about the death of Mr. Floyd, um, and um, and on the other side of the coin about people who are angry about the fact that there is an order in the streets. This is, you have these two sort of twin forces that are pushing against each other, and the place to seek emotional satisfaction, the place to seek justice, the place to seek order is not the capital markets. It feels unsatisfying for that reason. It is not a place where you find an equilibrium where the things we wish to come true about the world happen. That's right. And look, I look, I'm here in my sleepy little village on the coast of the UK and the coast of England. And um, yesterday we saw that, you know, the second shop on our high street, and it's not got many shops, is now going because of, of the, the shutdown. So, you know, as just on a personal level, you know, you're seeing this very small community with a small number of really interesting shops. It's starting to disappear. Now, in other communities, it's the important shops that are disappearing. It's your family shops. It's the people that you've known. And so it's really difficult when you see 
what is clearly this um, this bifurcation between the haves and haves not, the fact that you know, when was the last calculation on the top billionaires in the US had added 483 billion to their net wealth through the crisis. And that is shocking. It's that statistic we we're talking about before, which is that um, the big five stocks in the US that are now 20% of the S&P, the peak prior to that was 18% in 2000, they're 20% now, they account for 9.8% of all global listed equity. That's five US stocks. You can just see that there is a very small number of, of companies or people making hay, whilst the main street, whilst the real economy is slowly coming out of the deepest part of the shock of the COVID section of this. But now that might be a realization that they have to deal with the previous 10, 15, 20 years of excessive debt, the fact that people are living right on the edge. And in this world of debt, you tried to reduce debt repayments, but you wanted everybody to keep on in that sort of debt-fueled world of consumption. But that might now be coming to an end with a reasonable impact, not just at the margin, but a reasonable impact on people's perceived standard of living. And that's where you get un unrest from. That's where you get disappointment. It's an incredibly tricky time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Who knows which way it's going to go? Yeah. You know, Roger, talking about optionality, uh, have you had a chance to see the Mike Green, Wayne Himmelstein interview on the platform yet? Yeah, I looked at that one. It's great. Loved it. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff. I mean, there's a lot of optionality in there. Um, but the bit that I honed in on actually was was that bit about the 401ks that we were talking about before, because you know, Mike was very, very quick to talk about the concentration and acceleration effect within those tech stocks. He was also saying, and by the way, the 401k flows still look like they are coming through. But now he's actually saying it looks like they are falling. It looks like people's wages are being impacted, which is what we were saying um, early on. And he's saying what was happening at the very beginning is that the, you couldn't see the impact because people were on their two weeks notice. And that two weeks notice included money still going into your 401k account. So for the first two weeks after all the um, um, after all the closures started to occur, it still looked like they were flowing through. Whereas today's looking at it going, yeah, there's no buybacks apart from in one, one area. And those 401k flows look like they're, they're receding. This could be a problem for the equity market. So who's the buyer in town? The buyer in town is the Fed and the Pavlovian reaction of that, which includes the retail new brokerage accounts that have come through. So we focus on those now, and that can give us our kind of sentiment for the market. Yeah. It's an interesting piece, I think, because he talks about those broader strategic points, specifically 401ks. And then uh, they discuss uh, the ways that you play it with options, which I thought was really interesting. There's a, It's kind of a primer on uh, some of the, the mathematical um, basis for why options give you access to non-recourse lending um, without downside, right? So it's an interesting. Yeah, it's one, one for those who like a little bit of sort of technical side of things. Yeah. Um, but I think that's great because they, they then bring it back into the real world as well. So there's a little bit for everyone in there. Yeah, non-recourse lending, I should say specifically. Obviously, there are downsides, but the idea is that you can get convexity on the way up and you have some concavity on the way down. That's right. Yeah. Roger, to get back to the broader picture that we were talking about earlier, all of this sentiment, all of this dissatisfaction with markets' inability to solve some of the world's bigger problems, does that lead potentially into, as you just said, uh, a sentiment problem that may translate into downward moves in the future? Yeah, I, I look, I, I still think that we roll over. Um, I think that the market has been juiced further than I, the market has been juiced further than I would have ever, ever expected. Um, 62 was always my upper limit, really, on that. And then I'd reevaluate it. Um, but the big risk is, as, as a, the big risk we care about now is that we have emotional players in the market. And they're not just at the margin, they're actually quite big. And they've got involved in a lot of stocks. And if they need to get out, there could be a herd mentality on the way out. They've only been winners so far. 
what happens when they start feeling a little bit of pain. It's not happened yet. That's the sort of thing which I think is is an unintended consequence of handing out money in a time when people can't go to gambling shops because there's no sport, but there's a market to gamble on and it's been a one-way ticket so far. It won't be a one-way ticket forever. It can't be. Yeah, absolutely. Let's leave it there, Roger. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to join you again. Stay safe, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.